Hi everyone and welcome to Himal podcast. I'm Raisa Vikramatunga. In recent months, there has been increased discussion around regulating content online. For example, Pakistan recently enforced its removal and blocking of unlawful online content rules, giving the state regulator broad powers to restrict online content. India recently brought online news portals and entertainment content providers such as Netflix under its purview, and Sri Lanka has announced its intention of formulating laws modeled on Singapore's rules governing online digital content. Given the discussion around regulation in the region, we thought it fitting to have a conversation on the topic of regulation. Is it necessary? And if so, when should it be introduced? I'm here to discuss this with Dr. V. Sridhar, Professor at the Center for IT and Public Policy at the International Institute of Information Technology in Bangalore and author of Emerging ICT Policies and Regulations, Roadmap to Digital Economies. Welcome to Himal Podcast, Dr. Sridhar. Thank you very much. Thanks, Teresa, for having me uh, in this uh, particular edition. So just to start off, um, in your book, you uh, seem to have taken the position that digital regulation is almost inevitable. Uh, very often though, the state regulates the digital realm not to fix the market, but for authoritarian reasons and for the suppression of freedoms. In this context, who do you think the regulator should be given these realities? Telecom uh, as such has been in a regulated industry all over the world for quite some time. Uh, so the regulator uh, use, normally uses command and control mechanisms to control, uh, for example, the telecom industry. The reason is that telecom uh, industry, a telecom marketplace is not a competitive market. It is an imperfect market with about three to four, maximum five telecom operators providing service. And therefore it is an oligopoly and all the imperfections uh, of oligopoly uh, will be present in the telecom market and hence the need for a regulator. Now, if you move towards the digital mm -hmm. uh, space, right, uh, internet companies, digital platforms, uh, uh, over-the-top players, and so on, um, you know, we have not seen active regulation uh, all over the world for quite some time until recently. The reason is that this is a new area of technology. There are innovative services that are being provided by the various um, service providers, and therefore, we should encourage innovation, right? Now, only after it reaches a certain point where the imperfections of the market start exhibiting that the regulators step in. I mean, the, the cornerstone of regulators stepping in is through Facebook Cambridge Analytica deal, or for example, uh, Snowden's revelation, right? So these things have prompted the regulators to put in some rules so that the, uh, you know, the consumer benefits are not, uh, uh, you know, affected. So I would say that, uh, you know, the regulators have a role to play in the digital space, uh, but not so much as the telecom regulation uh, in the traditional sense. So, uh, you know, in the book also I advocate, for example, self-regulation, co-regulation, or the methods by which the digital space could be uh, sort of regulated and not in a very strict command and control mechanism uh, by the state. Your book frames regulation as primarily a necessity in the context of imperfect markets, as you mentioned. Um, so, you know, lack of competition, high barriers to entry and so on. Do you think a purely market view is sufficient to understand digital regulations? 
<laughs> That's a good question, Risa. So I, uh, you know, it is still evolving, right? Suppose if, uh, you know, there has to be a yardstick uh, to find out when the particular industry has to be regulated or it, it should not be regulated. Now, the, the yardstick that we normally use are the uh, general principles of imperfectness in the market, right? Uh, so that is from the economy's point of view. Uh, there can be a different views from the other areas. For example, if you look at the societal point of view, maybe the economic point of view of regulation may not be perfect, right? But at least the telecom regulation as of now uh, always looks at uh, some imperfections in the market. You know, for example, uh, you know, in, in the internet space, right? So for example, Google or Amazon, they have become uh, monopoly behemoths <coughs> and therefore, there is a reason for the regulator uh, to worry about it because it is an imperfect, it's, it has turned out to be an imperfect market, right? So the uh, traditional view of regulators is to look at imperfectness in the market and then take appropriate actions if imperfectness, um, you know, uh, are present. Now, it is uh, possible that that may not be the ideal way to look at it. Like, for example, uh, you know, from the societal point of view, uh, you know, even if there is a perfect market, for example, in news, for example, we have so many OTTs to providing news, but still there can be imperfection because uh, there can be fake news, which can be propagated, it may not be of, uh, you know, uh, it may be of uh, reducing value for the society at large, and therefore the, uh, the, the regulators might have to come in and then take some necessary actions. So I wanted to touch on events that have recently made the news, which is India's kind of move to ban China-based apps, including, you know, the very popular app TikTok. Um, and this has had a negative impact on the emerging digital content creator market. What is your view of this move? Yeah, so uh, that's a good point, uh, Raisa. So, uh, you know, I discuss uh, in one uh, uh, chapter uh, about uh, the, uh, the, you know, even the privacy chapter a little bit, because I have done a lot of work on this, uh, you know, later on, uh, you know, after writing the book. Uh, this is called the data nationalism, right? So once, you know, we, we thought that, you know, free borders, open countries, uh, it is good for the benefit, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it will uh, you know, have positive impact on trade, you know, especially digital trade. But as of now, um, uh, you know, most of the countries seem to be creating policies uh, which protect their national interest, right? So the national sovereignty uh, has taken precedence uh, in most of the cases. So data localization rules have come in, right? Most of the countries have data, even in EU GDPR, there are adequacy rules which want to you know, confine the data within the limits of EU uh, to, as much as possible. Um, you know, uh, so most of the countries have started enacting these rules which are very nationalistic in nature, right? Now, uh, see these data national policies, data protection regulation, which prevent certain apps to be used, which uh, prevent data to be transferred across borders, uh, right? Which want all the data to be stored within the country by even uh, global uh, you know, internet so, uh, you know, service providers. Mm -hmm. You know, that is uh, not good, right? So there are, uh, again, uh, you know, what I'm saying is, uh, all, if, if we say that all data, uh, you know, all digital data about the citizens of the country have to be stored within the country, if you make a rule like that, then it is not going to fly, right? Because uh, 
Uh, see, on one hand, uh, there are a lot of economies of scale of uh, you know storing digital data in the clouds, right? So the cloud may be anywhere. It improves reliability. It improves security. So it is in the interest of the data fiduciaries to store data in a disparate location so that the, the you know uh, the the availability uh, uh, of the data is as high as possible. Right? But for uh, uh, you know for nations might say that you know this particular data is. You know, for example, if you take uh, India's uh, data protection, you know, draft data protection rule, it says that uh, there is a set of data which is very particularly, it's very sensitive, and therefore it needs to be stored within the country for, uh, you know, for example, uh, security, national security purposes, or preventing fraud, for example. You know, that is possible, but we need to clearly subset the data that needs data localization for a purpose, right? So it is very, very important for the state to define the purpose behind data localization. What is the purpose? If, for example, data security, surveillance is the purpose, then only that data which enables surveillance should be stored, right? Now, ideally, that is that should not be the case. In fact, bilateral agreements and global multilateral agreements have to take place so that even if the data is elsewhere, we should be in a position to access it, right? The state should be in a position to access it given the purpose. So I find that in most of the data regulations, the purpose is very ambiguous, right? The purpose is very generic, uh, but uh, so uh, we need uh, you know, careful deliberation on what is the data that needs to be stored locally and for which purpose so that it can be clearly articulated in the policies and also can be enforced. And do you think this is something that the state should be doing given, you know, the concerns we were talking about earlier as well, where, you know, there have been this tendency to use it to kind of suppress freedoms? Yes, 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 definitely, definitely, right? For example, the internet shutdowns, you know, which have been happening all over the world, you know, especially in countries like India, uh, that is uh, not good, right? Because as you know, I am teaching courses online and there are students uh, who have to access my course, uh, you know, in real time synchronous, <laughs> I'm giving a talk. But unfortunately, because of the lack of uh, 3G or 4G, you know, because of data, uh, uh, you know, internet not being available, uh, because of uh, because of shutdowns, internet shutdowns, they are not able to access my course. And that is, you know, who is benefiting? Nobody is benefiting. Actually, the, the students are uh, suffering, you know, because of that. So blanket shutdowns, right, like this do not serve any purpose. Similarly, I'm saying that, you know, any regulation, the blanket regulations such as, you know, store all data locally, ban all the apps. I mean, these are not the way in which the policies and regulations should be uh, should uh, should be you know pronounced. It should be uh, there should there should be a very articulated purpose, and there should be a time timeliness involved. You know, for example, internet shutdown uh, in some of the states in India have been going on for a long time. I'm against that because uh, you know has the purpose been satisfied? Then why not open it? So there has to be a time limitation. Right on, uh, you know, um, any aspects that we are dealing with with respect to stringent regulations, such as internet shutdowns or data localization and so on. Right? So I'm saying that uh, uh, the states have to be conscious about this. You know, who is benefiting from all these things? Right? Okay, uh, I want to shut down because of certain purpose, and after the purpose is achieved, then I should open it up. I also wanted to uh, talk a little bit about um, some of the other topics you've covered in your in your book. In light of, for example, recently in South Asia, internet service providers have been tying certain digital products with their data offers. 
and this is especially happening you know in this age of where there's a lot of remote work and study due to the pandemic so for example special packages for microsoft teams for even for things like netflix and so on in light of this what do you think this means for net neutrality so so uh, you know as you know there there is pure net neutrality right which means that uh, the 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 content uh, and the users should not be uh, you know differentiated i mean it should not be discriminated that is pure net neutrality uh, you know pure net neutrality with respect to price traffic and users i mean this is there should not be any discrimination then there is uh, pure non net neutrality where uh, you can differentiate you can differentiate with respect to price you can also differentiate with respect to uh, you know the traffic uh, so that the priorities can be provided for netflix for example or uh, the users the users themselves you know for example netflix users are given more uh, speed and you know things like that right so there is absolute discrimination now most of the countries right they we don't fall into pure net neutrality or pure non net neutrality but we fall sometimes in between you know for example there can be a zero rating package right so for example if you subscribe to uh, netflix plus uh, for example telcos uh, uh, you know uh, 4g uh, contract service then you might get it for free but if you access uh, uh, any package other than what is bundled in that particular offer you might be charged right so that is price discrimination right price discrimination across different content right the content which is bundled is given Uh, free of uh, bandwidth cost whereas the other one is priced at a positive price right? and therefore the users will tend to consume more of the zero priced offering uh, for example the content that is bundled with the service compared to the others and therefore the others will buy right that's the concept of net neutrality so i am not totally against for example certain kinds of non neutral behavior non net neutral behavior right uh, so for example uh, if the if the if the if the, if the uh, you know um, content is bundled uh, with the service provisioning as long as the user has the option for uh, you know choosing some other content right if he or she is interested and if it is allowed then it is okay right we can tolerate right especially in developing countries you know for example um uh, it may be the case you know for example africa you take africa Uh, most of the free basic services are available free basics of facebook are available in most of the african countries so they have taken a stance saying that you know with free basics i am getting all these facebook content uh, free uh, with the service uh, contract and therefore it is going to benefit the masses at large and therefore we should allow it right uh, india has taken a absolutely net neutral stand pure net neutrality stand india is it was not allowed us has gone back back and forth right so uh, these things do happen uh, so the countries have to be very clear right they they, they when, when they are making regulation so for example if for example uh, if we want a small and innovative entrepreneurs to compete with the giants such as facebook and google then we should not allow bundling right bundling of the application with for example the service provider at zero uh, zero price right zero price so uh, so if it is positive price in that the other ap- application is also available at a slightly higher price then it is just okay it's not a complete violation of net neutrality so the rules and regulations have to be formed taking into consideration the ecosystem that we want to nurture see we want to nurture innovation and we want to nurture local startups competing with global startups then we might uh, uh, 
want to uh, you know move more towards net neutrality compared to for example the non net neutrality point of view right so that is the uh, you know trade off or the balancing walk that the regulators have to do what would your kind of advice be to south asian digital rights activists um, as they get ready to face a string of stringent state regulations that could negatively impact freedom of expression right so so uh, definitely see uh, you know all these aspects right uh, you, you, for example data localization or uh, you know um, states rules on uh, curbing freedom of speech of the digital space um, uh, is uh, you know it, it has been bothering uh, you know all the data subjects at large so uh, you know as you know in the um, you know, in in Egypt when uh, when there was a the the rising was there, um, so people uh, uh, you know there was an internet shutdown and the people uh, within uh, Egypt were not able to communicate outside. So uh, and the same thing may be happening in China because of the uh, you know the Chinese firewall that they have created. So uh, uh, you know the states have to allow uh, uh, you know freedom of expression, right? And digital space, uh, you know, because of the ease with which we can communicate, we can reach out to larger. Uh, you know, masses, uh, it should uh, not be stifled, right? Uh, but at the same time, uh, the government should uh, carefully note, for example, uh, the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the speech or the, uh, I mean, the, the, the content uh, that uh, if, it, if it creates some, you know, social unrest, uh, then appropriate actions uh, may be taken. You know, for example, uh, there is a lot of talk about intermediaries, right? So Facebook and WhatsApp and so on. I mean, are they reliable for the information that is carried? Should they be controlled so that they will be able to proactively monitor the content and then take appropriate actions if it is found to be negative for the society at large? So I'm against proactive monitoring, right? But the intermediaries should be liable. You know, suppose, for example, uh, if there is a hate speech and uh, the intermediary comes no about hate speech, then they should uh, take some actions. They should take some actions in order to filter out hate speech, uh, notify the users that there's such a kind of things is happening. I mean, those are some things that the intermediaries have to take action on. Um, I don't know about the other countries, uh, other South Asian countries, but in India, for example, there is absolute immunity uh, to the intermediaries, right? So intermediaries um, are intermediaries and therefore they should not, uh, they, they are not immune, they are immune to, for example, the, the content that is going on uh, through the network. So they have to be made liable, they have to be made responsible uh, because they affect society at large and therefore uh, there has to be some amendments to the way in which the intermediaries have to uh, function so that the negative aspects of the free speech, you know, for example, hate speech or uh, misinformation and things like that can be controlled to some extent. You know, you, you also said that the state should you know, take appropriate action given there are instances where there's social unrest. Are you confident that uh, the state in this example, I guess we'll talk about uh, the Indian state. Are you confident that the state will be able to kind of define what action is appropriate? See, definitely, I mean, uh, Reza, uh, most of the South Asian nations, right, including the large countries such as India, have uh, uh, do not have enough capacity in the government to, to make, uh, you know, appropriate uh, regulations and rules in a perfect way, right? So we, uh, you know, we, we normally, uh, I mean, we, it is quite possible that we might 
actually take rules and regulations um, from other countries and uh, we might you know for example most of the countries have adopted a gdpr because that has become a golden standard uh, but uh, when we uh, enforce when we try to enforce it it becomes a problem you know one of the things that we have noted in most of the countries is that the state is not liable for their action you know individual data fiduciaries are responsible but what about the state if it makes a mistake right and they should be made liable right so that is totally missing in most of the developing countries right because it is all state driven right so state can ask given certain purpose but if it is misused who is liable the state has to be made liable right and responsible and that's one of the things we in india are uh, you know requesting it to be included in the data protection bill right because there are a lot of instances where the government or the state has gone wrong right they've intruded the privacy they have intruded certain uh, aspects of free speech uh, and if they are held liable so today the only uh, recourse that we can take is the judiciary right uh, so apart from the judiciary there is no way by which the government can be made accountable for if it they take wrong actions but it has to be embedded you know i think to some extent eu gdpr has succeeded in embedding the government as one of the data fiduciaries and be made responsible and liable for any misappropriation and uh, misconduct and that has to be included in the regulation of most of the countries then we don't have to really go to the judiciary for each and every event right we can possibly solve it using the existing uh, legal uh, you know regulations and rules right that leads nicely to my next question actually which was on data protection legislation which is a topic of discussion in sri lanka because we are also contemplating uh you know passing legislation uh, on data protection and india did produce this uh, data protection bill in parliament in 2019 broadly can legislation on data protection always be a panacea to kind of privacy related issues that's a good question reza right so laws and legal you know rules and regulations are there so that the you know the stakeholders in the ecosystem uh, conduct their behavior properly right so we assume that if there are rules and regulations then they will comply to that but that's not the case right even if you take eu gdpr there are so many violations in fact i teach a course on privacy and we have found that uh, you know the cookie law you know the famous cookie law in the eu has been violated left and right by all the data fiduciaries right now so now you can ask this question you know given the rules and regulations why are the data fiduciaries violating this and are they not being caught i mean if they are caught what will be the liability for them right now uh, european union to some extent has succeeded right so they have put a very high penalty for violation of privacy uh, you know for privacy breaches right uh, notification if they don't notify privacy breach it's going to be like you know 10 million dollars and then 2% of the annual gross revenue uh, global gross revenue and if for example uh, they 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 do uh, you know data fiduciaries do not take due diligence and security and protection of privacy uh, of the individuals then it is much more right it's 4% of the annual gross uh, revenue of the data fiduciary and so on so there is a high uh, liability uh, you know um, high penalty if you violate right on the other hand most of the other countries do not have you know for example even in the personal data protection bill we have copied to some extent the ugdpr but still uh, you know whether someone will be caught if they violate the rules and regulations and if so will the penalty be applicable will the uh, data fiduciary use which is violated will pay that particular penalty or get away with it right 
These are all big question mark. In most of the developed countries, that is the problem. Law is written, rules are done, regulations is there, but the enforcement of the rules and regulations is very weak, right? And that is one thing that I want to uh, stress upon uh, with respect to data protection. So we might come up with, you know, Sri Lanka can come up with an excellent data protection regulation, but is it going to be enforced? Is it going to be, you know, if, for example, somebody is found violating, uh, is it going to be penalized? The data fiduciary is going to be penalized by how much and so on. So, uh, you know, data fiduciaries, as you as you are, as you know, uh, they they want to, uh, you know, they will look at the cost and benefits, cost of compliance versus the benefit of not complying with it, right? So, if the cost of compliance is lower compared to, for example, the benefits of breaching the law, then they will do that, and that has been the way in which, you know, for example, the Facebook channel deal came up, right? So, the benefits seem to have been uh, larger, and therefore they breached that particular rule, okay? And uh, so, so what I'm saying is that. Uh, uh, these uh, data protection regulations uh, provide the grounds, you know, the reference range, right? And uh, it is for the data fiduciaries and all the other stakeholders to comply with it. Uh, but if they don't comply with it, the state has to take stringent actions, enforce it. And that is the way in which uh, uh, this can move on. So uh, to answer your first question, is data protection regulation a panacea? No, it provides a ground rule, right? And the, the question is, whether we can enforce whatever is present in the data protection regulation, not only for private data fiduciaries, but also for government data fiduciaries is a question that needs to be answered by most of the developed countries. And um, yeah, for the record, I think you, you did already mention in passing that, um, you know, you felt that India's uh, data protection legislation was kind of imperfect, um, but just wanted to ask if you wanted to add anything to, to what you mentioned. Yes, yes. So, so a couple of things, right? So a couple of things. So for example, it mentions that, uh, uh, you know, uh, the critical personal data has to be stored within India and India only. That is one of the uh, clauses for data localization. Now, uh, it has left the state to define what critical personal data is, right? And therefore, it is an open question. So you can, it can come up with anything, uh, you know, and everything under, under the sun later on. Uh, the second one is uh, the, uh, you know, the definition, you know, the definition of personal sensitive data, which has to have at least one copy within India, the mirror copy has to be there within the jurisdiction of the country. Now, again, you know, it is very loose passwords, you know, things like that have been included in the sensitive uh, personal data. So uh, these definitions are a little bit loose, but nevertheless, it is a move in the right direction. Right? because it provides the ground rules for data fiduciaries to do data protection when they collect process personal information right so it is uh, it's a good start it's a good start but it has a little bit of uh, you know um, and uh, and as i have told you before the government fiduciaries are not included in the uh, for example uh, the set of entities uh, that has to comply with all the rules and regulations of the data protection bill and the act when it is enacted so uh, inclusion of government as one of the important data fiduciaries, you know, is very important in the success of any data protection bills and regulations. Otherwise, as you have correctly stated, state can actually, because of the power asymmetry between data, uh, you know, government and citizens, it is possible that the government can actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, do things which are beyond the rules and regulations which are defined in the policies and regulations. You also speak of artificial intelligence as a double-edged sword in your book. Why do you say that? 
And what do you think can be done to mitigate the negative impacts, including, for example, on the labor market? So, uh, so as we have seen, uh, right, uh, the, the machine intelligence is taking over. It has come uh, into the market and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, routine tasks are being automated. Um, you know, today, because of the computational power and the intelligence of the algorithms uh, and the availability of large amount of data, um, that uh, even uh, non-routine tasks, cognitive tasks are also getting automated. So it will have definitely an effect on the labor market, right? So for example, already we are seeing that, uh, you know, uh, some of the routine jobs are being taken over by machines, you know, for example, even in the IT industry, if you take IT industry, it is supposed to be a highly cognitive uh, task-oriented industry, but uh, the testing jobs are, are gone, right? Because most of the software testing is, be, is being done today by robots and uh, algorithms. And therefore, it will have an effect on the labor market. But the important thing, I think, uh, uh, you know, Professor Asimul Gu of MIT has, uh, you know, uh, excellent, you know, done an excellent analysis on the impact of the labor market. So, if, for example, uh, uh, you know, if there is going to be an impact, you know, whether it is in the routine, uh, you know, labor-oriented tasks or the non-routine cognitive tasks, the machines are going to take over. Then the the problem, the the challenge for the government is to do skilling appropriately, right? And then define where the machines should go and where the machines should not go, right? So, for example, um, if uh, the the if labor-intensive work is very important for, uh, for example, for a particular country, then they should encourage AI and machine intelligence to be used more for, uh, you know, cognitive tasks, non-routine tasks. Uh, you know, something like that should come into picture. So, but in general, uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know, the, the impact of the uh, artificial intelligence and machine intelligence on labor market is, uh, uh, is, is the question of reskilling, right? So we need to really reskill our labor force uh, because we cannot stop technology from progressing. Uh, art we cannot artificially stop it, right? If it comes to a stop on its own, it's fine, right? So any, uh, you know, uh, company will uh, either recruit a machine to do a particular job or a labor to do a particular job. Uh, based upon the productivity, right? Marginal productivity to wage. So if, for example, the marginal productivity is higher compared to the wage, then they will deploy, uh, for example, labor. Um, if, uh, for example, it is uh, cheaper and more productive to deploy machine, they will deploy machines. So it's all economics, right? So uh, in order for us to carve out a, a space for ourselves, we need to be very clear. Uh, as uh, to reskill, right? So the humans, if humans become better than machines, then they will never be replaced, right? Both in terms of wages that we pay and also uh, based upon the productivity, right? So if we, if the labor becomes more productive at relatively lesser wages, then they will not be replaced. So there's no need to worry, right? So I would really advise, you know, uh, as is given in the book, to encourage the positive aspects, right? And then mitigate the negative aspects. The negative aspects can be mitigated using regulation, right? So for example, trustworthiness. You know, whenever I employ machine intelligence or a robotic system, it has to be trustworthy. New guidelines have come up uh, with respect to, uh, you know, uh, the, the machine, uh, the autonomous system regulation, and uh, we should take some clue in order to incorporate it in most of the countries. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much.